Welcome to Trial Tested, a podcast by the American College of Trial Lawyers. Trial Tested is a discussion about life and law created to elevate and inspire trial attorneys. My name is Dave Paul, and I will be your host for today's episode. Good afternoon. This is Dave Paul. I'm a fellow with American College in Orlando, Florida, and it's my privilege today to interview Ken Feinberg. For those that don't know, Ken Feinberg is a graduate from the University of Massachusetts at Amherst NYU Law School. He has worked in the government field with Senator Ted Kennedy. He's worked as a United States Attorney General. He served as a special master and administrator of the largest mass disasters of our country's history, including 911, the BP oil spill, issues related to the opioid epidemic, and the TARP funds. He served as an arbitrator. He served as a mediator, including mediating the Jerry Sandusky cases and mediating cases with other high-profile, big issues. It is truly my honor today to talk to Ken Feinberg. Welcome. Thank you, David. Glad to be here. Where I would like to start is when you were younger, what did you dream that you were going to be doing? Oh, I thought growing up I was going to be a movie actor. And in fact, right through college, I enjoyed, between studying American history and government, I enjoyed acting on the stage in high school and at the University of Massachusetts. And I thought about continuing my acting career until I received some very good advice from my father, who said to me, you know, actors are uh, trying to make a living waiting on tables at restaurants in New York City, hoping for a big break. Why don't you instead go to law school and take your uh, acting skills and bring them to the courtroom. And that was very, very sound advice from a very wise father, and that's exactly what I did. Which job, when you were younger, before you became the Ken Feinberg that we know today, which job most shaped you? Oh, I think working for my father in Blue Collar, Brockton, Massachusetts, in his retail automobile tire store, That job convinced me that it was not something I ever wanted to do (laughs) and that I couldn't wait to leave that summer job, that job that I worked in after school, and instead go to something that was more professional. Very important. My father always said that working in his store and working for him was an important catalyst to decide to do something and break out from that type of occupation. As a young lawyer who graduates from NYU Law School, was your first role in government? Yes. My first role was becoming a law clerk for the chief judge of New York State, a very nationally recognized jurist, Stanley Fold. And upon graduation, I had a two-year clerkship with a prominent brilliant jurist, Stanley Fold. And for two years, I worked in Albany in the Court of Appeals, New York State, and honed my skills as a technician, as a law clerk, as a lawyer. And that had a tremendous influence on my subsequent career. When I think of you as a law clerk and then some of your other roles, it seems like you would be somewhat of a natural choice to be a judge. 
I presume you've wrestled through that over the years. Oh, I've had plenty of opportunities. When I was chief of staff to Senator Kennedy, Ted Kennedy, he occasionally asked me whether or not I'd like to go back to Boston and get nominated and, you know, serve as a federal judge. And I gave it some thought, but I thought first I didn't want to go back to Boston. I was in Washington with a young family. Secondly, I thought it would be too constraining for me. The idea of being a judge and being responsible for hearing others in the courtroom rather than being more proactive, advancing a client's interest in the courtroom, I thought was much more uh, interesting and much more with my personality and upbringing. That's an interesting thought. I wonder if you were giving advice to a lawyer who was wrestling with whether or not they wanted to head down a judicial path or some other path, what do you think are the right questions that they might ask themselves to decide, am I supposed to be a judge or not? Well, the first question I tell them is, are you sure you want to be a jurist and immerse yourself in trials or appellate work? But the most important question I'd say to that lawyer or inquiry I'd make is, or suggestion, if you want to be a judge, wait, wait. I find that today entirely too many very good lawyers decide that they want to wear the robe prematurely. There are lawyers I know who in their 30s or 40s decide they want to go down the judicial path. I'm very negative on I think, first of all, you should be a lawyer and practice law for a period of time. You should build up your financial independence. Judges, no matter what level judge, are limited in the financial end of things. And I think, you know, philosophically, a lawyer should have a real broad outlook about the law and about the strengths and weaknesses of the law before she or he opts into that type of cloistered environment. The other thing I would say to lawyers that, very good lawyers that I know, if you want to be a judge, what does that mean? Do you want to be a state judge, a local judge, a federal judge? Do you want to be a district federal trial judge or an appellate? circuit judge. I mean, saying that you want to pursue a judicial career begs the question of what type of career. That's a good, good insight and good questions. Those words need to be heard in a much broader audience of lawyers because we're seeing, you know, in my state in Florida, younger and younger jurists, you know, I'm not talking forties, even early thirties. So those are, those are good reminders Let's go to your early first big giant mess that somebody enlisted Ken Feinberg to help navigate. It seems like from researching you, that would be the Agent Orange. Is that right? Or would there be something before that? No, that is exactly correct. My big break in the world of mediation and arbitration was in 1984. I was practicing law at a Washington law firm, Kay Scholler, 
and a former law clerk of Stanley Fold, who I knew as part of the law clerk network, Judge Jack B. Weinstein, an eminent, nationally recognized jurist on the Federal District Court in Brooklyn, New York. Judge Weinstein called me and asked if I would agree to serve as a court-appointed special master, as a mediator, to try and resolve the Vietnam Veterans Agent Orange product liability litigation. Had you ever done anything like that before that? No. I told the judge, Judge, I, I don't know anything about mediation. I've never even taken a course in law school. There was no course in mediation or alternative dispute resolution at NYU in the 1970s, late 60s. And Judge Weinstein said, I know you. I know your background. You clerk for Stanley Fold. We know each other. You're the man for the job. That one case changed my entire professional career over the next 60 years. Have you had a moment in the course of your career with all of the different conflicts and disasters you've navigated where you've had legitimate doubts, fears, worries? Oh, I've had many times where I've been challenged with a particularly difficult, complex assignment, 9-11, the BP oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico, the Boston Marathon bombings on Patriot's Day. I've had numerous mediations and claims programs where not that I've had doubts, but that I burdened myself with challenges that I knew would be difficult to address. That lowered my expectations as to the definition of success, I must say. But you don't take on these assignments if you don't think that ultimately you can accomplish the objectives. Let me follow up on that. When you say I changed my definition of success, it makes sense to me, but I want to be sure I understand what you're saying. Take the 9-11 fund. 13 days after the 9-11 attacks, the World Trade Center, the airplanes, the Pentagon, Congress passed this law, this federal law creating unprecedented, a taxpayer-funded compensation program. The Bush administration, especially Attorney General John Ashcroft, asked me to design and administer that program. Now, at the time, I looked at the statute and I looked at the objective of compensating victims who voluntarily wanted to come into the program. And I uh, took on that assignment. Once I accepted the assignment, I quickly realized in a matter of weeks the real challenge with the 9-11 fund was not going to be calculating damages. It was going to be dealing with the very emotional mindset of the victims or the surviving family members and their anger and frustration at life's unfairness and what I learned in the 9-11 fund and in other programs, similar challenges. It's not the law or the calculation of damage that is so difficult. Judges and juries, as you know, David, do that every day in every court. It's dealing one-on-one -on -one with the emotional claimant. Mm. 
the emotional claimant who is angry at life's unfairness and comes at a program like 9-11 with an assumption that money is hush money and is just designed to placate and doesn't really provide an avenue to understand the victim or what she or he meant to the family. And you learn the hard way through trial and error that in many of these programs, your assumptions about how to make the program work effectively are undercut by curveballs and challenges that you didn't believe would exist when you took on the assignment. In terms of how you process the most complex issues that have come across your career, I'd love to know your process. I know it's not always uniform for everyone, but are you a collaborator where you get a lot of second opinions? Do you get a loan? Do you wake up early in the morning? Whatever it is, how do you handle practically curveballs that challenge your assumptions? First of all, transparency. Make sure that whatever the program, whatever the process, whatever your assignment in determining eligibility and compensation, make sure that you have a very transparent, open process. No hidden agendas. Secondly, make sure that you consult with a very small team that have worked with me for 50 years on these programs. That's Camille Byros, who has been my colleague for almost half a century and who is, I think, the nation's foremost expert in the actual administration and operation of claims programs and doling out compensation. Third, consistency. Transparent rules that will be consistently applied so that nobody can say I was mistreated or I was treated differently than my next door neighbor. And lastly, I think that it goes hand in glove with transparency is absolute honesty, the ability to explain to every emotional claimant or mediation participant what you can do and can't do. I can't bring back lost lives. I can't provide anybody compensation that is adequate consideration for a lost loved one. All you can do is in your limited field of financial certainty, provide people with compensation, but you've got to level with them so that you maintain adequate expectation of what you can do and can't do. I want to stay with kind of dealing with other people's anger. How many, just total ballpark, 911 victims, families, did you interact with over the course of administering the fund? 950 hearings. I personally conducted 950 separate confidential hearings with any claimant who wanted voluntarily to see me. Now, a lot of people didn't come and see me because they grieve in private. That's human nature. But 950 people individually asked for and received 
a private hearing over 33 months with me to express whatever they wanted to tell me about a lost loved one, or in some cases, an injured victim who came to see me, who survived the attacks. And I gave each of them the opportunity to be heard. I'm going to get real with you here. I'm having a hard time visualizing myself carrying the emotional burden, or frankly, even listening to the emotional burden of 10 people that lost a loved one, let alone 950. I literally cannot fathom it. So what I want to ask you is from a human perspective, Ken Feinberg, how did you carry and handle all of that loss, all that pain, all that anger, some that got directed at you? How did you carry that? First of all, it was very debilitating, absolutely debilitating. A little sleep, angst, anxiety, frustration that you're the the source of so much anger. You're the government. You're running this program. What I found out from the very beginning, in order to maintain my equilibrium emotionally, you have to take a break during the day. You stop these hearings one after another, and instead you take a walk around the block, buy an ice cream cone, just get your mind off of the day-to-day horror that you confront. Then at night, I found that attending concerts, classical music, chamber works, opera, the symphonic scores, music, the height of civilization in contrast to the horrors of civilization during the day, Mm. a loving family. And then don't forget, 9-11, you're asked to take on this assignment by the president of the United States and the attorney general. That's all part of it. It just seems amazing to leave that experience and then just keep doing it. (laughs) Like, it seems like it's not the same, but I look at what you've done since then, some of the projects, what keeps you going? Do you understand what I'm saying? Like, technically, you could have spiked the football after 9-11, but you keep wading into the opioid deal, the TARP deal. I I was sitting there thinking of the case mediating the United Methodist Church, trying to wrestle through what the position was on homosexuality. I'm thinking of the jury Sandusky. What has kept you engaged in the battle or the process? Well, you know, I'm asked that a lot. And there are a couple of answers from the obvious If President Obama, after the BP oil spill, or Mayor Menino in Boston and Governor DeVal Patrick in Massachusetts, if they're asking you to take on an assignment, it's pretty hard to say you're too busy or you don't want to do it. I mean, it's a sort of a patriotic thing. Also, I must say, you're honing in on something. When I was a teenager in Brockton, Massachusetts, President Kennedy was in the White House. And President Kennedy had a tremendous impact on my thinking. Back then, he said, back in 1960, 61, 62, to a young teenager, he said, you know, serving the public interest is a noble undertaking. And every single individual in America can make a difference. I never forgot that. I never forgot it. And to this day, 
I think it important to give back to the country. And if our elected officials or a judge or somebody asks me, will you please design and administer a compensation program following a national tragedy, I just feel that obligation to do it. It seems like you've stayed above politics even when you're so close to it. When I think of the range from George W. Bush, President Bush, to President Obama, and I I have a number of other things that I'll skip, but it really does seem like you've stayed above politics. What have you done so that you haven't become a political tool? Uh, Don't give me too much credit for that. I think the reason these programs that I've administered I stay above politics is because the program is above politics. One fascinating aspect of all of these programs is how after a national tragedy, 9-11, BP oil spill, Boston Marathon bombings, Pulse nightclub shootings, Sandy Hook first graders all murdered in Connecticut, Aurora, Colorado, dark night movie shooting in Colorado. One thing you find out after these tragedies is how the program to compensate is apolitical. The country really rallies around the victims. I don't think in 9-11 there weren't blue states, red states, Republicans, Democrats, liberals, conservatives. It was one fund, consensus, endorsed by the American people, And I'm asked to do it, but I'm implementing and administering a program which really is apolitical, I must say. And one other thing I've learned in all of these programs, never underestimate the charitable impulse of the American people. It is astounding to me how the American people rally around their fellow citizens and endorse and promote these compensation programs. Let's drill down on that charitable nature specifically. I'd love to get your take on Trial Lawyers Care, the pro bono effort of the trial lawyer community that responded to the 9-11 fund. Let me tell you something. Trial Lawyers Care, as much as any other aspect of the 9-11 fund, was the reason for the fund's success. I will always be in the debt of the trial lawyers, the leader at the time, Leo Boyle, a fellow Massachusetts trial lawyer. And a fellow of the American College of Trial Lawyers. Absolutely. A hero of mine. A hero. If the trial lawyers hadn't stepped up proactively, A, endorsed the very idea of a fund, B, offered to represent any victim or his or her family pro bono, C, would not ask even for disbursements in representing clients, D, worked closely with me from the moment I accepted the assignment, the fund would have never been as successful as it was. So, I cite the trial lawyers and Leo Boyle and those who helped administer trial lawyers' care. I cite them as the best example in my lifetime of how our profession 
as lawyers serve the public interest. I want to uh, pivot to a different topic. Have you seen the show Hamilton? Yes, I saw it on Broadway in New York City. You know the the song, The Room Where It Happens? Yes. It seems like, from my vantage point, you sat in the room where it happens. I'm talking specifically rooms with BP, rooms with VW dealing with the emission scandal, rooms with GM, General Motors dealing with recalls. You sat in the room of some of the largest companies in the world and things happened. Here's my question. What does good leadership look like in a crisis? That's a very interesting question. You should ask philosophers about that. I've found in my experience, what is most important comes to leadership in the crisis is honesty and the ability to articulate to a certain degree of certainty the blueprint for moving forward. I find that victims in a crisis, whether they be corporate executives or fellow citizens or fellow lawyers, I find what is very important when you're asked about what you would do, how would you deal with the crisis, to provide an honest assessment with a degree of certainty that provides the listener a comfort level that I've thought it through. They may not agree, but here is a certain path that I would take and that I will back you up in advancing that path. I find that's what leadership is all about. Not on the one hand, on another hand, maybe I'm not sure. Leadership requires venturing an opinion as to how you have thought it through and how you best think resolution should occur. Now I want to talk about talented communicators, effective advocates in terms of how they communicate, whether it's to a mediator, a panel, one-on-one. When you think of kind of the great advocates, lawyers of communicators, who's on that list for you? At the top of the list, without a doubt, I've said so publicly, is Justice Breyer. Don't forget, Breyer was a professor of administrative law at Harvard before he ever went to work for Senator Kennedy in the 1970s. And my personal advocacy skills were honed watching Breyer as a lawyer and as a professor speak to a crowd. I have never uh, had anybody, uh, known anybody, that was as effective as now Justice Breyer, but at the time, Lawyer Breyer. He was the best advocate I ever worked with. Now, there were others over the years who were very effective advocates, but Breyer stands alone in that regard. What made him so effective? Just his conversational style. I find that when I'm asked to comment or to speak to a trial lawyers group or the ABA, or a group of professionals, or otherwise, I find that the best way to communicate as an advocate is in a conversational manner. Don't read a speech. Don't just wrote point one, point two. Speak with the audience, not 
at the audience. And what I learned from Breyer, who was uh, great at this and still is, is he would speak with very little notes. He would have his five or six points that he wants to make, and he'd make them in a conversational manner, almost like it's one-on-one. And I don't think I can recall over the last half century, or at least the last 40 years, where I gave a talk or gave a speech with a written speech in front of me. I think the conversational style is the key to success. In terms of attention span, what's your take on how long people can realistically pay attention to any one person talking? Brevity is a virtue. (laughs) If I'm asked to speak, I'll usually urge that I be asked to talk no more than 30 to 40 minutes maximum, leaving plenty of time for questions and conversational engagement with the audience. And sometimes it's interesting. You've seen this, David. Sometimes the promoters of a talk will say, you mean you're really willing to take questions from the audience? Unsolicited, unprepared, you don't know what they're going to ask? Of course. I think that's part of engaging the audience in making the entire presentation worthwhile. The other thing I wanted to ask you on advocates is in the mediation realm, so shifting to the mediation realm, the great advocates and lawyers for their clients in mediation, what are some of the things you see them doing? The great advocates don't necessarily perform well in mediation. (laughs) They're advocates. They believe in the adversarial system. And what I find very interesting in mediation over the last you know, decades is that the most effective advocates are not the most effective mediation participants. Because you see, if you're going to be an effective mediation participant, the question is, how can we best get to yes? How can we best get a consensus resolution? I don't need trial lawyer advocacy. I need mediation participant creativity, understanding, empathy, skills that may not be as important in the courtroom become essential in effective mediation. Some of the best mediation participants, advocates that I've worked with over the years are not the best trial lawyers, but they are very, very effective in getting to yes. You seem to be a little bit of a seasoned veteran in conflict. So I want to shift to interpersonal conflict, conflict with family, conflict with people you work with that you're close to. What insider advice do you have on dealing with interpersonal conflict? All I'll say about that is that over the last 30 or 40 years, I'll occasionally, there'll be a family conflict in my own family. And I'll say to my children, well, you know, I'm, a, I'm an experienced mediator and I'm glad to help you, uh, my children. I'll help you resolve this family dispute. 
And more often than not, they'll say to me, mind your own business. <laughs> because you see, in family conflict, familiarity with the participants, understanding their personalities and their emotional wherewithal, the type of mediation where I've had success doesn't augur well for mediation where emotion runs so high. Emotional outburst is the enemy of effective mediation. And in a family interpersonal setting, emotional and family history serve as a very challenging backdrop to thinking that you can bring your skills to help resolve those disputes. I want to ask you, this is going to sound a little off topic, but I know you've served as the chairman of the board for the John F. Kennedy Library Foundation, or maybe just the John F. Kennedy Library. For those of us that are engaged in leadership positions in nonprofits, whether they be public or private, what's your advice on leading a good board, a good nonprofit board? I've learned over the years that you want to create great diversity in a nonprofit board. I'm not talking just about, you know, ethnic and gender diversity. I'm talking about discipline diversity, difference in outlook, difference in professional and private achievement. In a nonprofit board, particularly a public one, I think you want to really have a very diverse board and a board with limited tenure so that there's constant fresh faces and new outlooks. And I've found over the years when I was uh, chairman of the board of the JFK Library Foundation, how important it was to have that fresh perspective, younger outlook, and a great diversity of disciplinary background. Because that was, after all, a very public and a very nationally recognized board that was designed to perpetuate the legacy and the message of President Kennedy. I want to shift to two questions, which we have been asking all of our guests on Trial Tested. And the first is, when in your life have you felt most powerful? Oh, that's a, that is a tough question. I would say this, I certainly have not felt all powerful in my personal where it's very important that you don't, I don't think, pursue a perception of power, but rather a perception of empathy and love. In my personal life, the most power was in my professional life serving as the special master of the September 11 Victim Compensation Fund when Congress delegated to one person, me, all of this authority to distribute over $7 billion. No committee, no appeals, no judicial oversight, no congressional oversight. Just do it, Ken, and do it correctly. I don't think there's ever been a more powerful position in government or in the world of mediation for that matter. And I can't conceive of Congress doing it again. When is the most powerless you have felt? Oh, well, I think you're powerless really in these type of consensual mediations over and over again involving private parties where despite all of your efforts 
to facilitate a voluntary agreement, you often or occasionally walk away frustrated that you've made all these arguments, you've used every tool in your toolbox to try and get the parties to agree voluntarily, consensually. And you're frustrated at the end when you fail, and you do fail. And that you really do feel a certain degree of impotence that you're unable to bring the parties together. Let me uh, drill a little bit. Most of us have experienced a hard failure in our life. In my experience, we learn way more from failure than we do success. I know that's not universally true. Would you be willing to share what you would consider to be your greatest failure and what you learned walking through it? Well, I can say this. Every single time that I've assumed the challenge of a 9-11 fund or a BP oil spill fund or a Boston Marathon fund, every single time I make mistakes, every single time, and you learn the hard way about mistakes. Let me give you an example of a failure of mine, an example of what I mean. In the 9-11 fund, I held a private conversation with an 82-year-old man who lost his son at the Pentagon when the plane hit the Pentagon on 9-11. And he came to see me one-on-one. And he was crying, Mr. Feinberg, I lost my son at the Pentagon. When the plane hit, he worked at the Pentagon, but he thought his sister, who also worked at the Pentagon, was trapped. He escaped from the Pentagon after the plane hit, but he thought his sister was trapped, so he ran back into the burning building to look for her. She had escaped through a side door, he died looking for her. Now, Mr. Feinberg, a father should never have to bury a son. My life is over. I'm just going through the motions at 82, but it's terrible. And I looked at this man, all right, I'm the experienced special master of the 9-11 fund. (laughs) And I say to this man who's crying, Mr. Jones, this is terrible, just horrible. I know how you feel. Well, this man looks at me and he puts his hand on my shoulder. He says, Mr. Feinberg, you've got a tough job. I don't envy what you have to do day in and day out, but I want to give you some friendly advice, constructive advice. Don't ever tell someone like me that you know how I feel. You have no idea how I feel. And it sounds hollow and pretentious. Well, I've never done that again. And I've learned a lot about mistakes in trying to exhibit empathy in these programs. Beware. Beware trying to be too empathetic with strangers. And the less you say, the better. But when you talk about failures, David, when you take on every one of these assignments, you make mistakes, you fail, and you have to dig yourself out of a hole sometimes, and it's not easy.
when I think of what shaped you to be willing to take on, you know, challenges with which there's not a roadmap, things which haven't been done before, who most shaped you to prepare you for that? Judge Weinstein, because he was my mentor and started me off with the Agent Orange case that you referenced a while ago. And Weinstein gave me some very, very valuable advice about all of these programs, even those that were prospective that he knew nothing about at the time. First, when you do these programs, forget that you're a lawyer. Better you're a rabbi or a priest dealing with emotion. Second, provide a great deal of certainty and transparency as to how these programs will work. And third and most importantly, get money out the door fast. Rough justice. Don't hem and haw. Rough justice. All the words and empathy in the world don't really matter if money isn't flowing. Only after money is going into the hands of victims can you step back and take a breather. And those lessons have been on my mind in every one of these programs, as you can tell from this interview. And that's really Judge Weinstein's mentoring. A couple more areas. Um, One is totally selfish. But if you were to give advice to a group of lawyers that are, I'll call them 50 to 60 years old, if you were to give some advice to lawyers in that age bracket, and you just didn't worry about being humble, you just said exactly what you were thinking, what advice would you give? Be very careful at that age about slowing down, about retirement. Be very careful about prematurely determining that the next 10 to 20 years of an effective legal career should be short-circuited by notions of retirement or a change in lifestyle. I've seen too many lawyers in my career retire prematurely with the result that they're frustrated, that they're unhappy, that they rue the day, that they decided that prematurely a life of leisure is more fulfilling. And my advice when you provide the caveat or the precondition 50 or 60 years of age I marvel at somebody like Marty Lipton at Wachtell Lipton in his 80s, who is in every day, who I try whenever I visit New York or come to Wachtell Lipton to mediate to stop by and get some friendly advice from somebody like that. That's my advice to lawyers who come and see me and think that maybe as an existential matter, they should begin to think about retirement or slowing down or changing their lifestyle. I mean, well, that's not what I want to hear. I know it's good, trusted advice. I know it's I know it's good, trusted. What's your favorite place to vacation in the world? I have my home that I built after uh, the BP oil spill. I built a home on Martha's Vineyard. And if I have a chance to get away, it's a 50-minute nonstop flight from Washington. Martha's Vineyard is as good a place as any, even in the winter. Wow. Desolate up there, but it is a wonderful opportunity to just relax and read and think and enjoy yourself. What are you doing with your time now? Working. 
working full-time. I just finished the Purdue mediation, still working on the Boeing 737 MAX crash compensation program. I'm heavily involved in the Monsanto Roundup National MDL litigation. I'm staying busy. What do you do to stay healthy? Well, I try and exercise as best I can. I don't often do a very good job of it, except on weekends. But you watch your diet like everybody. and You try and avoid the, the type of medical issues that everybody confronts as they get older. What's your vision for the next chapter of Ken Feinberg's life? Like Marty Lipton, I plan to continue to work, mediate, maybe do some more pro bono cases, do less claims administration and more claims design, compensation program design, and still mediate, but at least I have a little bit more selection. If you were to recommend three books that you think are excellent books for trial lawyers to read, what three books would you reference? You ought to read, everybody ought to read, not only trial lawyers, the new biography of Ethel Rosenberg, who was electrocuted as you know, during the McCarthy period, for treason, conspiracy to commit treason, espionage, with her husband, Julius. Every trial lawyer should read that book. It's not a long book about a miscarriage of justice. And I think that's an important book to read. A second book I found to be a very good read was a book about the history of Rogers and Hammerstein, the composer and the lyricist. There's a book out, I forget the name of it, it was written about 10 years ago, it's now in paperback, about the life and professional acclaim of Richard Rogers and Oscar Hammerstein II. And it's a very good read, not only about Broadway and musicals, but about American theater, American culture. And I found that to be very good. And the third book I just completed, a great example of revisionist history is the new biography, a fabulous one-volume biography of Confederate General Robert E. Lee and the pros and cons surrounding Robert E. Lee's career and decision to join Virginia in seceding rather than staying with the Union. Great book by a history professor. And I urge those three books are all recent books that I've read. Well, I really have enjoyed talking to you. And what I want to say is I appreciate the legacy of service, your service to the 911 fund done pro bono for 33 months, the wading into unnavigated waters that are filled with potential problems, the boldness of that, staying above politics, really being a thought leader in the area of mass disasters. You have lived an incredible life, and I love that you're still going strong and hard. It's inspiring for me. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, David. I enjoyed it, and congratulations on advancing the rule of law and lawyers and what we stand for in this country with your podcast. I think you're serving the public interest as well. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Trial Tested. Episodes drop on Thursdays. Subscribe now to catch every discussion. Thank you for listening.